0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn
1: more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie mosman watler with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3 – our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad, they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much for that, Jeet. I like that little extra bump of volume just before I start talking. It always makes me feel so important. This is what doesn't kill you: food industry insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. We're going to continue my series on water and water quality issues in the United States. We've talked a lot about what's happened in North Carolina, and we talked a little bit uh, last time about, or one of the, you know, one of the more recent episodes about um, sort of water quality in Iowa. And today, I'm really pleased to have on the line. With me, Neil Dubrovsky, who is the chief of the Water Resources Assessments Branch in the United States Geological Survey Water Mission Area. Earth System Processes Division. That's a mouthful, folks. Um, but I'm excited to talk to Neil because he and his team have come out with what they call a circular um, about that is, I guess, an aggregation of many, many, many other reports on water quality in agricultural areas. And he's going to try to lead us through some of the more complex and arcane aspects of that study uh, to help us understand better what is happening to the water systems in the United States and specifically in agricultural um, areas. So welcome to the show, Neil. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you very much, Katie. Happy to be
3: here.
1: Thanks. My pleasure. That's great. It's nice to have somebody from from the gov. Like you're a government agency, like wow! I feel very important that I got you on this show. So let's talk about the study. What was the name of the study, and what did you guys? What were you guys looking at?
2: Well, this program began in the uh, early '90s in earnest, and it was piloted before that in as a response to a, a question from a congressman Yates, that asked simply what is the condition of the nation's water quality? Mm. Can you summarize that for us? And the answer was we could not simply because although there had been data collected, it wasn't collected in a manner that allowed you to sweep it all up in a consistent way and give an answer that covered the entire United States because people collect data for different reasons in different places. So we designed a consistent national program that we could apply across the entire country and began collecting data in 1992.
1: Wow. And you've been studies, doing it ever since. And you've been doing it ever since. So the study that we are talking about today goes from about 1992 to, 19, to
2: 2004. Is that right? That is correct, that, that report. Yeah. But the program has been ongoing.
1: Yeah, that was like a follow up to actually the pilot that you that you just mentioned, right? Because that that measured sort of the beginning. That was the beginning of this program, and then this was the follow up, as I understood it when I was reading it. That was some heady reading, man.
2: (laughs) It's it's extremely heavy reading. I'm surprised you tackled it. (laughs) Ask me for the cliff notes. Uh, (laughs) There had been pilots prior to '92, but it started consistently in '92. The 92 to 2004 was essentially the first decade where we covered the entire country because we Uh had to do it in pieces because it's just too expensive to do all at once. And since then, we've been basically um, refining the target, moving more from just kind of baseline monitoring to more computer modeling, prediction and forecasting and Mm -hmm. revisiting places to see how they're changing over time.
1: And they are changing over time, as it turns out. Um, sometimes are. for the good and sometimes for the not so good. So let's start mm-hmm. with what are the chemicals that you were sampling for that you refer to in this report and which ones were the most important from your point of view as a, as a hydrologist.
2: The it's, we were trying to be as comprehensive as possible, which makes it very expensive and, and very time consuming. Mm. So I could call out some individuals, but I'll first call out groups, and you can jump in any time, but we measure what we call major ions, calcium, magnesium, sulfates, chloride that uh, in and of themselves usually have no uh, specific uh, human health uh, uh, regulation, nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. Over 200 pesticides, um, a large group of pharmaceuticals, which we call, you know, contaminants of emerging concern. In groundwater, we also sample for trace elements because they're commonly occurring geologic materials and in some cases enter our water. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's also some special studies. We've more recently started sampling for uh, toxins from uh, cyanobacteria, harmful algal blooms. Right. Uh, we're doing some pilot work looking at what they call PFOAs,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the, uh, these fluorinated compounds that are we're finding in groundwater. We've done uh, work on uh, We The same program also looks at, I should mention, it's comprehensive. We look at groundwater resources, surface water resources, uh-huh. and also evaluate the aquatic biota at the same points on streams where we have water quality data so we can relate the condition of the aquatic ecosystem to contaminants.
1: Mm. I I want to take you back for one second to the um, pharmaceuticals that you're finding because I I didn't actually notice that in the study. I I have to admit I didn't read all 186 pages of it. Um, I I didn't see anything about the pharmaceuticals, but just just give us a quick thumbnail of what kind of pharmaceuticals you are maybe testing for or what you have found. I'm just curious about that.
2: I probably would... Will not do that. There is what okay. I will tell you is that there is another USGS program. So we're we're, uh, had to make this brief. There's another USGS program that's mo- that is more targeted to things that are just becoming issues called the Toxic Substances Hydrology Program. Uh-huh. They have some publications out on this. A lot of our samplings um, newer and uh, covers a broader area. But I don't have a lot of specific findings to share for you.
1: That's OK. I'll the, look up, I'll, fo- I'll follow up on that.
2: And uh, uh, with apologies, 180 pages. That, that one report was really just about nutrients. Yeah. And the national program had, at that, at that time that, that was published, several teams looking at constituent groups across the entire hydrologic system.
3: Mm-hmm. There was
2: a pesticide national synthesis team, one looking at volatiles in groundwater. I'm looking at ecosystems mm-hmm. and then my team was looking at nutrients at that time
1: and so nutrients we I mean what I read was mostly focused on uh, nitrogen and phosphate or phosphorus yes,
2: exactly those phosphorus those two are the big targets.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and you had something called maximum contaminant levels, which are regulated, and referring to mm-hmm. those two particular uh, items, since that's your expertise, nitrogen and phosphorus. So you had the maximum contaminant levels and, and those are regulated or only nitrogen is regulated?
2: Uh, maximum contaminant level is a specific uh, uh has a very specific definition in EPA's uh, regulatory lexicon. And those are the contaminants in which they specifically require public drinking water purveyors to measure for and report on and control for, Mm -hmm. for human health reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. Nitrogen and phosphorus and nutrients. Nitrate is uh, almost the only one that has a MCL, Uh, And MCLs are developed to protect against a specific human health outcome. And for nitrogen, it's uh, actually for what they call anecdotally blue baby syndrome. Uh, The formal name is methemoglobinemia, big mouthful. (laughs) And essentially, it interferes with the ability of the blood's hemoglobin to carry transport oxygen.
1: And why is that? Okay, this is outside of your field, I know, but just in in the off chance that you can answer this question, why are only babies? Is it only babies or is it immunocompromised? Is it also the elderly or is it literally specifically just infants?
2: That's a good question. I'm probably not qualified to fully answer. Uh, I will tell you that my understanding from the literature is that babies are particularly susceptible to this condition of uh, uh, developing uh, mm-hmm. methemoglobinemia, and it has to do with just a very specific, you know, biochemistry of babies' uh, digestive tracts oh. that changes as they develop. So it is actually something they grow out of. That mm-hmm. is not to say that a large amount could not induce that in uh, adults. Honestly, <clears throat> you're right. We're now, we've crossed the line with my expertise.
1: That's fine. Um, Neil, I know we're going way off of my outline, but I'm just, like, for instance, uh, Toledo, Ohio, has had several summers over the last five or six years in which um, their water, because of the nitrogen load, is so heavy that they're not able to drink it, and part of that is the cyanobacteria. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I I guess what I'm asking about is eutrophication... you know, aside from the Gulf of uh, the Gulf of Mexico, eutrophication is happening more and more in other bodies of water. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, what that, what the implications are for wildlife, and also for you know problems with being able to drink our own water supply. Did I make that clear? Is that a clear question? I'm not sure it is.
2: It it, it is. And we'll have to be content with a a pretty (laughs) broad summary because it's it's, an extremely large range of impacts. Uh, At its most fundamental level, the addition of excess nutrients does what you'd expect it to. You have uh, more plant growth, and specifically algae growth, than you want. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, a lot of the early writing on this, you know, summarized with the phrase, too much of a good thing. Uh-huh. Now, once you get too much of that, you have literally a lot of organic mass sitting in the stream. And and I should say, from from the top, you mentioned coastal areas and the dead zones there.
3: Yeah. But
2: the same basic process can occur in a stream or in lakes, and any freshwater body as well as coastal mm-hmm. areas. And essentially, you get... Too much organic material that is biomass, algae, or plant And uh, I'll, I'll give one end member that is, that they it they die eventually, and when they die, oh. they rot. And when the rotting is an oxidation, it consumes the uh, oxygen in the water, in the lake or a stream. Uh-huh. And you wind up with a lot of nasty effects. One is, as you mentioned, you get low DO dead zones, the fish don't have adequate uh, oxygen, and you can have fish kills, right? Um, the, the, you can have just plain old aesthetic problems. Nobody wants to swim in a lake or a stream choked with uh, algae or even dead, or even worse, dead algae.
3: Yeah. You
2: can have impacts on the cost of uh, real estate values because of those aesthetic de- degradations. Um, as I said, as you noted, you can have harmful algal blooms that actually produce toxins and are a problem. Um, and then the ecosystems themselves, you know, you, you, t- you hear this phrase, ecosystem. Uh, services uh, in the business that people recognize that ecosystems. It's it's nice to have a healthy lake or a stream. <laughs> From the beneficial use side, you c- can simply look at it as would you swimmable, fishable, drinkable, drinkable. <laughs> Thank you. That's the fun. we we hit the drinkable at some level, but w- would you want to s- swim in it? Do you want to be in contact with toxins? Do you want to swim right. through algae? Um, recreational value? Can you fish it? Are those communities, uh, even if they're not dead, are they the communities you expect? Do you have a, still, do you want a cold water fishery with trout? Or are you happy to catch something that's tolerant of that, like um, catfish? Now, there's also a whole set of other economic impacts that mushroom off that growth, because even when you don't get a toxin, uh, a lot of these algaes produce a set of uh, Compounds that are really, unfortunately, easy to taste at really low levels. Huh. So these drive water drinking water companies crazy because you can taste it, and you go, "Boy, my my, my tap water tastes musty." Mm-hmm. And your poor drinking water provider is trying to filter these things and treat it, but at very low levels, they become uh, something you just don't want to taste. Sure. But they they have no health implications, so. But nonetheless, it's costly because people don't want to taste that. Right. So but, there's, there's, a, there's really a huge range of impacts that mm-hmm. are ranged from just kind of, gee, I'd rather not have it look that way or taste that way, to gee, that's bad for your health.
1: Right. I'm going to die from drinking this. <laughs> We right. don't want yeah. that. I mean, uh, you That's, know, yeah. when you say that they that they're harmless, and I, I don't mean to be a fearmonger here, but I just wonder if there is that we we think it's harmless only because we haven't studied that particular algae, or is it absolutely completely axiomatic that it is harmless? It's just aesthetically displeasing. I mean, is there is there, are there full on studies of what these bacteria or algae blooms uh, bring along? Or is that well, you know so far so so good? We're not worried.
2: I that's that's again we, we've cro- crossed the line in my area of expertise. Okay. That's all right. That's um, okay. and, and, and as you know, uh, harmlessness in the eye of the beholder, and Indeed. virtually right, anything, <laughs> many, many things are are are, are bad uh, taken to the extreme, and some things are just poorly studied. Uh, I'm afraid that's one I can't
1: okay uh, answer for you yeah. that's okay i don't want to give out for you know i wouldn't want you to not yeah. have exactly the right answer i'd rather not answer it at all so now the study that you that you you know that this you you were the lead uh, researcher on it shows that there were the highest levels of nitrates obviously were in agricultural lands and especially in the corn belt and since your study only went sure. to 2004 given that the cultivation of corn and soy have increased you know, have you been able to sort of predict through the modeling that you referenced at the top of the show like where that those nutrient levels have gone in that sort of gap of 14 years? like what what has happened since then? Can you tell how much better or worse it is? Yes,
2: uh, and there's a, a couple of different tools. Uh, there's uh, modeling is good, and I'll return to that, but the gold standard is um, measuring it. Mm-hmm. And just as an aside, uh, you know there, there are people that are, are are enchanted by the power of computers and especially <laughs> new families of statistics called artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning systems. Um, but there, uh, you know, the the very old mantra about that also is a uh, garbage in, garbage out. And one has <laughs> to be uh, one has to understand the quality of the data that the model is based on and is learning from. Uh, unfortunately, climate is changing and they, uh, the, the technical phrase it is non stationary. Stationary means everything is the same as it was and will be. So you can take fundamental physics, fundamental chemistry, and build a model and you won't get the same outcome. But if your climate's changing and your stream flow isn't the same it was, even under the same at the same point in time at the same time of year, your prediction will be off if it's based on what on what you've learned previously. So this is the new reality. A geology student thirty years ago learned it's very simply the past is the key to the present. You study these systems, you can tell where you are now. Mm. Now it's changing. specifically for hydrology, you need to continue to collect data. So we have been. We have a site of both groundwater networks with wells that we've, some of which we've been collecting data from since the early nineties mm-hmm. and a key set of sites on streams and rivers that we continue to monitor. So we can see how the quality is changing. In, and again, you can imagine it's extremely complex. Even just standing in one point of space, you look upstream in your watershed, yeah. the land is developing, right. land use is changing. Even within a specific land use, like whether it's agriculture or urban, people are learning how to protect their watersheds better. So their inputs, their processes are changing as well, and the climate's been changing on top of that. So it's a really complex nexus of land use, human activities, and natural change. And at these sites, we have long periods of record, and then we have some very good statistical programs, and we're We're currently in the process of uh, analyzing our past 20 years of data now and updating the change in both groundwater and streams. We have websites you can go to. uh, If if I think if someone Googled trend USGS streams and rivers, they would probably pretty quickly get to our site for rivers, and they could look at um, different parts of the country, Mm -hmm. see whether nitrogen or phosphorus or a lot of other constituents are going up or down. Same thing for groundwater.
1: Right, right, and I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was gonna. I mean, I'm. I'm glad you brought up climate change because, I'm just wondering how much impact climate change is having on algae blooms, on eutrophication, on water quality issues in general. I mean, I would imagine that the warming of surface water certainly, or um, is that what I'm talking about, surface water versus groundwater versus aquifer, yes. right? Okay, so surface water is clearly much warmer than it was, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. How much has that uh, contributed to things like the Gulf's dead zone or, you know, the problems in the Great Lakes um, and other, you know, major bodies of water that we that big communities draw their drinking supplies from?
2: You know, uh, that, that that's, again, one that I'll have to waffle on. Even okay. people that have... <laughs> Uh, that's okay. I have collected a I'll, I'll waffle, then I'll give you some first principles, and people can think about it a little bit. It's, um, I'll take, for example, harmful algal blooms. Uh, sadly, there wasn't very uh, large-scale systematic data collected on where this was happening previously. Mm. So it's like a lot of other, especially public health things you read about, you have to ask the question, are we looking more carefully? I mean, do we have better tools for measuring it, or is it really changing? Uh, the, so there's, there's a lot of uh, angst in the, the community studying harmful algal blooms because they wish we had a better, more quantitative answer to that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that there's a collective feeling that, yes, they're, they're, they're increasing, although there had been some terrible cases in the past mm-hmm. um, that have uh, also improved due to better management. Uh, I will say that at least where we're measuring, we seem to be seeing blooms where they had not previously been recognized. Again, I, I can't absolutely say we no one had uh, that we had looked as carefully, but there had been a bloom a couple of years ago. You mentioned the Toledo one. Yes, on Lake Erie. Lake
3: yep.
2: Erie is a well-known and very deeply studied problem that had gotten better and now is again getting worse, sadly. But there are places like the Ohio River. A couple of years ago, there was a bloom on the Ohio River that shut down drinking water supplies along the Ohio. And probably, you know, prior to that, um, you would have been hard pressed to find an expert that would have said, "Yes, rivers, which are moving water, as opposed to lakes and reservoirs, might have a harmful algal bloom." Uh, But as we look, we're uh, we, we we think that. Um, rivers may be susceptible as well, though much less so.
3: Yeah, because you the water moves. Climate,
2: yeah. The water moves; it's mm-hmm. so it's continually being flushed. But mm-hmm. some of these big rivers move slowly, and they have a, impoundments along them for navigation,
3: mm-hmm. for
2: moving the you know corn down the Mississippi and Missouri.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: there, you know, there's there's a possibility. Uh, and yes, so what causes a bloom? You ask. Well, what kind of role does climate change play? Uh, and we are, again, I'll, I have to beg off that we have a team specifically looking at change, at trends in surface water. And they've spent the first part, we're on our third round. We're, uh, we've worked in cycles. and We're coming toward the end of our third round of this. 92 through 02, 02 through 12, 012 through 2022. Hmm. And that team has collected a large amount of data from other agencies nationwide to look at change. And they're just getting their reports out. And I think we're going to be able to address that in a more concrete way soon. But just from first principles, taking halves as an example, you think about what encourages a have bloom. Well, More nutrients. We've talked about that already. Right. Is that climate-driven? Well, maybe in some cases, maybe not. Complicated. Mm -hmm. Temperature. That's that's actually pretty easy. A lot of uh, these species uh, grow faster uh, under uh, warmer water. Warmer water. So one might expect more haves if you're going to have warmer water. Yeah. And then there's just the hydrology. As we said, if it's flowing, moving, and it's changing you usually don't get conditions conducive to a, a bloom but if it's moving more slowly you uh, well you'll have a larger potential for accumulation of nutrients and larger possibility of a warming mm-hmm. so you'll have conditions conducive to a bloom mm-hmm. and if you have less flow because climate change has reduced the stream flow right then you might incur now those are all hypotheticals but you kind of put those pieces together and it, they, when you add them up, it looks like they could contribute to more in
1: the future. Absolutely. Um, Neil, let's take a quick short break right now. Um, have a commercial sponsor drop. I shouldn't say commercial, we have a sponsor drop. Um, and we'll be right back with uh, Dr. Neil. You're a doctor, aren't you? A PhD, yeah, Dr. Neil, Neil Dubrovsky from the U.S. Geological Survey. Stay tuned, people. We have so much more to cover.
0: This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial
1: agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases, and farmers have
0: the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100%
1: pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm on the phone today with Dr. Neil Dubrovsky from the U.S. Geological Survey. And just before we dive back into this, I want to give my own personal endorsement to Heritage Foods USA. Folks, if you have not bought one of Frank Reese's turkeys, you need to subscribe right now and order your turkey, because it is hands down the best I've ever had. I've been eating them for the last few years, and I will never buy anything else. So there you go. There's my little personal endorsement for Heritage Foods USA. Um, So back to Dr. Neil Dubrovsky. Um, Neil, so you, one of the things in your study points to some best management practices, um, and those include creating buffer zones, uh, using conservation tillage methods and nutrient management plans. Um, do you have any estimate on how much implementing those programs would affect drinking water in communities such as, for example, the article I sent you yesterday from the New York Times about Wisconsin uh, and how drinking water has become an issue in agricultural communities there? Uh, Kansas is another another state that has major water quality issues in their ag belt. Um, Ditto Iowa. I mean, everybody who's producing grains essentially in this country is seeing Uh, major water quality issues. So how much do you, were you able to measure or predict how much uh, in adopting those methods would alter that equation as it stands now?
2: That's an extremely good question. (laughs) Uh, I can answer that on two levels. And (laughs) one with respect to (laughs) one with respect to uh, our own work, and then I'll refer you to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's work. Okay. Um, actually, I, I should—I'll I, start with the latter because they—they've they, been partners uh, mm-hmm. th- throughout this, and of course, we—we uh, we have very different roles as, as agencies.
3: Sure. But the U.S.
2: Department of Agriculture you know, uh, promotes uh, sound man- nutrient management practices. Um, you'll see uh, in places like Iowa, other places that they tout. Uh, I think the four R's are the ones I can recite just about, but I think they're actually, I've seen an agricultural research webpage that had, they're up to seven R's. (laughs) And specifically, they're asking farmers to put the right amount of fertilizer in the right place, at the right time, and in the right form, all to minimize the off-site movement. Um, Farmers trying to maximize yield, and uh, we're trying to document the science of of what is happening from that application, and uh, yeah, the rest of the com- public community wants to protect the resource at large. The uh, best management practices, uh, by and large, many... And again, I'm, I'm slightly off, uh, out of expertise here, but I'll speak in general terms. Most places, uh, from even the local level, like resource conservation districts to state, uh, have, if, if not... Some requirements for a nutrient management plan, at least advisories, and provide expertise. So um, there's educational programs. I cannot say how much there's actually flat out uh, required on the ground. So one outcome is that it's a little difficult to know exactly where on points on the ground a management practice is being applied or or not. Uh-huh. So that that becomes a little bit of a challenge. Uh, we use geographic information systems you know, that have overlays over watersheds and, in fact, the whole country to see where different land use practices and ag management practices are in place, and then we see if we can statistically relate them to, for example, a reduction in the amount of nitrogen leaving a watershed. So, first of all, you need good information on where those are. You- right, right else you just don't know where they're being applied in space. It's a little challenging, but we have gotten some data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and in, then we bring those into our statistical models. And we have seen, um, there's, we have I know one publication where they showed that they could relate best management practices to a reduction in uh, nitrogen yield and I know we had there's some more recent work uh, digging into that, but it's not published yet. I should mention if uh, one of the areas if one wants to really dig into this uh, kind of a almost like a laboratory for this whole question is Chesapeake Bay watershed. There's uh-huh. a very 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 active uh, local to state to federal partnership that's been going on there for years. Um, uh, that. To uh, mo- just motivated to reduce nutrient inputs to the Chesapeake Bay watershed to protect both fisheries and recreational value. Um, very, very, right. very terrific science going on there. So the models show some some efficacy to the practice. Um, and I'll take it a slight, only a slight left turn to introduce you to one of the most complicating factors. <laughs> is that... <laughs> okay, it's... Yes, you have to invite a one-armed scientist to (laughs) testify, right? You've heard the joke.
3: Oh, my Lord. On the
2: other hand... (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, on the other hand, uh, a problem with trying to just grab a... Say we knew exactly in space where every management practice was being used on the ground today. The problem is we've been farming these areas and using... putting fertilizer on we've been you know we're not we're no longer a, a a older old world farm where you grow your crop and recycle the fertilizer and grow your crop it's called a closed system we have these large open systems where we import right. large amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus to produce enormous yields right they've been going on for decades
1: yeah like 50 living. 60 years and yeah
2: 50 60 years and each each annual cycle some of that fertilizer or manure leaks to the greater environment, as we know. And it has a memory. It has storage. It has, so what we'll talk about is legacy effects. Uh-huh. So these legacy effects can cause delays in when you see any effect of what you do right now. And uh, groundwater is one of the best examples because uh, nitrogen in the form of nitrate moves freely, You often with groundwater, Uh, there's a caveat to that, which I'll leave out for now. But what it means is you, if you put it on at the, you know, two miles from your stream in your watershed, it might take 10 years, depending on your geology. Part of it might take a hundred years. Part of it might take longer. Closer to the stream, it might be there in a week. So there's some portion of that fertilizer load that you measure in the stream isn't running off in that last rainfall. It's moving at some slower rate through the groundwater system. Uh-huh. So, it, so that's why we've seen some delays, even in the streams that you think of as responding quickly to runoff. Well, if it's not raining, that stream is essentially groundwater that has taken some longer, often much longer, amount of time to reach the stream from where it entered at the ground surface, mm-hmm. which could be far away.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So
2: we're seeing we we we're, we're ha- we feel like we've turned a corner in some regards that we're seeing effects now in the streams, the trends network that I mentioned. Some of the sites in the upper Midwest have turned the corner and are coming down. And as I mentioned, um, the model has shown that some of the management effects are having a having a, uh, an outcome or reducing the nutrient loads.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, the USDA has a whole other program. Called the Conservation Effects uh, Assessments Program (CEAP). Uh-huh. Um, actually, uh, I've been out of that specific job for a couple of years. I'm not even positive it's in effect. But they did a lot of work also to do- demonstrate this. Again, it's uh, it's a matter of taking science that you know the agricultural researchers are very very good at at the field level, and trying to figure out how that really is playing out at the broader landscape. Level when you put that science in the hands of farmers.
3: Yeah. And who that, also
2: need to maximize who's have an end. You know, it's like any other company, mm-hmm. they're trying to balance you know, protecting the environment with making a profit and, and maximizing their yield.
1: Yeah, totally understood. I mean, I, to me, the farmers are always the ones they get bashed and they're really the ones who are basically screwed by the big aggregators, uh, no matter whether you're working in uh, grain or whether you're working in animal ag. Um, you know, it's just, uh, I, it's amazing to me that anybody goes into farming, they just, they, basically it's just become, capitalism has made it so hard to be a successful farmer and do the right thing. But I want to, we're going to have Speaking to run along. as a
2: hydrogeologist, that, that's definitely an area I would not comment
1: on. <laughs> I totally understand that. That's my own personal editorial moment there. Um, and I will also say that the Conservation Stewardship Management Program, which is on the chopping block, or rather they're going to try to uh, fold it into another conservation program within the farm bill, Um, But that, you know, that is is something that this current Congress would like to see um, reduced, which is amazing to me, because my next and I think my final question to you, Neil, is as an expert in water quality, what's your assessment of the United States drinking water? And where are the biggest challenges that we face in terms of both conserving and cleaning up what we've already what we have? Not too big a question or anything, right?
2: Okay. Well, I'm going to use both my hands, unfortunately, here. (laughs) It's going to get complicated. So, first of all, I'll just just be certain we're talking drinking water, not broader effects, number one.
1: I'm talking drinking water, yeah.
2: And then there's a a whole side of that business I'm not intimately involved with. But I I will tell you that it's always a challenge to put costs on these uh, water quality impacts. And I'll give you a couple of reasons, but um, one question then becomes whether you're concerned specifically about human health or operational costs. Are we worried about, you know, because they're concurrent and they go together because they need cross over into environmental justice because everyone would like to protect human health everywhere. But infrastructure is costly and costly to maintain, and we've seen people make economic decisions that had terrible outcomes. This is Flint, Michigan. Right. I live in California. There are small towns in the southern Central Valley that cannot afford to treat their water. It's, it's an environmental crisis.
1: This is so, also true in Kansas in much of the farm belt, believe me. It's, it's a very widespread problem, not being able and to then drink. drinking
2: water And drinking water itself bifurcates because more than half the population relies on a public supply company of some Nature, but but then again, you have uh, a large, uh, significant chunk of the population, a number I used to have at the top of my uh, head that drink private wells. So Mm. they, um, so starting at the top, um, and then of course, you have surface water and groundwater. So I'll take them a piece at a time. You can can tell me you want a two minute answer, a 30 second answer, or. (laughs) the Rest of the day, I think
1: two minutes is probably going to have to be two it, minutes. unfortunately.
2: Okay. Rivers, uh, rivers, I, 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 my what we see is uh 303d listing by the EPA, which is the overall impact on stream health. You see sediments and drinking water side nutrients again, mm-hmm. because as I mentioned, it's such a long list. I'm, I, I, the cost of just as I mentioned, dealing with an algal bloom, taste and odor, right? Uh, and the, but in very few places in the country do you actually worry about the human health effects of nitrogen and drinking water. That's the upper Midwest. The rest of the country, not so much. Right. A large number of other issues. On groundwater, it's actually not nutrients. If you're in an intensively farmed area that has surface conditions like sandy soils, you, have, you probably have a nutrient issue. And that's your major concern. In the rest of the country, the largest drinking water problem if you're on groundwater is trace elements naturally occurring. Huh. That can be arsenic or radionuclide, um, like radium or uranium, but uh, or but arsenic's a, a big one, or, or manganese. Mm-hmm. So very different if you're on a surface water supply or if you're on a public supply. If you have a household well, yeah, you probably should have it. You, you might consider having it tested. Okay, I will. I will, I
1: promise. I have one. Okay. So Don't de- scare again, me. Depending
2: on, you could look at some maps online, uh, and you could have it tested. Household wells are often shallow. They're expensive to drill deeper. So yeah. you have a large problem with pathogens, which we haven't even talked about, yeah. and nitrate, um, because they're commonly in agricultural areas. And if you're in the wrong kind of hard rock area, it could well, it could be a trace element. Right. But again, you're often, you're, if you're on a public supply, please, your public supplier is interested in you being informed. They produce a consumer confidence report every year. Go online, look it up, uh-huh. and look at what the issues are huh. and decide for yourself.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
2: So there was, a, there was a, a little something for everyone sprinkled in there as opposed to. One word.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. Neil, thank you so much for joining me. I mean, I'm going to go back and read some more of the material, but I want you to tell people again, like, what they can see, the maps that you had, which were so interesting. And then there was a follow-up study by Megan Shoda, which was also quite interesting. Um, Can you tell, you know, show people where to go to learn more about um, the USGS work on, on American drinking water?
2: They would type in national water quality assessment USGS and that would be a point of entry for them
1: great and they and then you will know you will know everything that I know and probably more because many people will be able to <laughs> understand those reports a lot better than I'm not even a college grad here, man, you know. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is hard. But it was very rewarding, and this has been a great conversation. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and um, we well, will send you a link you to Thank you very this. much for
2: reaching out. I, I really uh, in, enjoy sharing our science and encourage people to visit their site and their, their local uh Drinking water suppliers and regulators.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something we all need to be paying a lot more attention to, in my opinion. But anyway, that's why I'm doing this series. So thanks to Heritage Foods USA for sponsoring my show today. Uh, Like I said, get on the horn, get on on your computer, and order your heritage breed turkey from Good Shepherd Farm. There will be no finer turkey unless you go out and shoot one yourself. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week. So long for now.